This is Suddenly Family. I'm Samuel Burke, and these are the true stories of people's lives forever changed by at-home DNA tests. Throughout this series, you've heard how a simple swab of the cheek has rewritten so many families' lives, including my own. Both of my parents discovered siblings they never knew existed. My dad learned the man who raised him was not his biological father. Though the most shocking result for us is yet to come. We never imagined a DNA test could give my family closure to the case of my missing cousin, Jerry. I didn't know what to think. I just knew that he was missing and that none of the other first cousins had heard from him. Folks were not out to their families of origin and their families would find out when they were either in the hospital and dying or immediately after they died. I think it was all a ruse on her part. I think she had it all planned from the very, very beginning. Unbelievable. Oh my God. That's the worst thing I have ever heard about my family. My family's own story of death and discovery. That's coming up on Suddenly Family. If you're listening to this podcast, that means you appreciate investigative storytelling. What if you had the chance to investigate and share important stories? Whether you want to dive into a new career in journalism or start your own investigative podcast, the Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University offers a variety of graduate programs just for you. My first step was visiting cronkite.asu.edu, where you can explore the master's degrees in investigative journalism, mass communication, and sports journalism. Now, back to Suddenly Family. A dark cloud looms over my family for years. My dad's first cousin, Jerry, disappears, and embarrassingly, no one even realizes at first. Strange for a group of cousins who, as one of them, Gail explains, all grew up so close back in New Jersey. Our two dads had a boat together. We'd go out on the boat, and Jerry and I would be on the boat together, and we just were fast friends and close, and then... When I got married, we had a good correspondence, and he met my children, and he just was my favorite cousin. Jerry's parents die when he's young, and he doesn't have any siblings, so his closest family are first cousins like Gail and my father, who often shares his last memories and communications with Jerry. Jerry was a fine pianist, and he was very smart, and intelligent. The last time I saw him, we were at Bradley Beach and we were playing Scrabble. When I got married in 1984, he sent my soon-to-be wife and I $500. It was a very generous wedding present. When did people start realizing that nobody's heard from Jerry? I would say not long after my wedding. I would say by, by 1990, he had fallen off the map with everybody. Something just doesn't make sense. None of the cousins fight with Jerry. There's no inheritance any of them bicker over. Whenever the cousins bring up Jerry's disappearance, though, they always come back to questions over his sexuality. I did know that he was bullied, that he didn't want to play sports or whatever. So that was probably the first sign that he was not like all the other boys were at that age. I mean, you did not come out of the closet when you were in that day and age. Did not. 
it was just so unheard of and so, so awful and total ignorance in that generation. I remember him telling us about his friend, Jose. Nobody ever sat down and said, I think Jerry is gay. Nobody ever said that in the family that I remember. If he had ever come out to me, I would have been very receptive to it and thought it would be wonderful that he found somebody he loves. So even though Jerry never officially comes out, it's the open secret everyone refers to when talking about his disappearance. I'm a teenager when I'm hearing all this, trying to make sense of my own sexuality, so I'm incredibly curious about Cousin Jerry and why he's gone missing. My dad constantly laments that such a small family can't account for one of their own. I didn't know what to think. I just knew that he was missing and that none of the other first cousins had heard from him. You know, he pulled away, I think, from the family himself. And I don't know if he was embarrassed because he didn't fit the mold or I don't know why he lost touch with us. But that was kind of the story that he just made his own life. By this point, all our family has moved to the West Coast. Everyone sends letters to the last address we have for Jerry in New Jersey, but they all come back, return to sender. Of course, we call the phone number we have for him, but the people who answer have no idea who Jerry is. I always hold out hope we'll find him someday. Until whispers start about Jerry being dead. Gail hears something from our cousin Joni, who was closest to Jerry growing up. I just remember her passing along that she had heard somehow from some cousin that he had died. I mean, we all were just so upset. I felt the loss. I remember the first time I suddenly hear people start talking about Jerry in the past tense. And then speculation comes about how he's passed away. Here's a cousin who had been close to other cousins and he had dropped off the face of the earth. The only thing I could think of was he had contracted AIDS and died. This news leaves me feeling incredibly unsettled. How does a supposed loved one disappear, much less die, without the family knowing any details? It's around this time I moved to New York and decide to start looking for Cousin Jerry. At the very worst, I know I might just find a death record, but part of me hopes Cousin Jerry is still alive. Until I attend an LGBT synagogue in Manhattan. It's World AIDS Day, and Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum recounts what it was like in the early 90s between gay men and their families in so many communities, including Congregation Beth Simchat Torah. When I arrived at CBST in 1992, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic here in New York City and around the world. Folks were not out to their families of origin, and their families would find out when they were either in the hospital and dying or immediately after they died. 40% of our men of our community died from AIDS and we had to deal with tremendous homophobia from some of these men's original or families of origin. It's the first time I hear the term family of origin, and it takes me a moment to even realize what Rabbi Kleinbaum is talking about. 
gay men estranged from their families and having to create new families out of their circle of friends. Suddenly, so many aspects of what Rabbi Kleinbaum is saying start to fit perfectly over the timeline of Cousin Jerry's disappearance. I remember one person whose family came and I met with them and the lover of the person who was dying in a hotel room. I still remember it so clearly. They had never met the lover. They didn't know their son was gay. They were so awkward meeting him. They had no idea what to do. And the lover desperately wanted his lover to be buried in the New York area, but the parents wanted him buried back where they were from. And of course, they ultimately were succeeded because they had all the legal rights. That was completely common, but dealing with families that were just discovering their sons were gay at the same time they were discovering that they had AIDS was not uncommon. At CBSD, there was a range of pretty much everything, but you can't be buried without a legal next of kin signing the documents. So often we had to find whoever was the legal next of kin, which is a complicated thing. So a lover at that time was not a legal next of kin. It could be an estranged parent or sibling. Cousin Jerry didn't have any siblings. His parents died long ago, and his next of kin were his first cousins, my dad, cousin Gail, and the others who lost contact with Jerry in the late 80s, right as HIV-AIDS was becoming a global pandemic. As I leave my synagogue that Friday night and walk home, I'm in a daze. Suddenly, everything about Cousin Jerry, isolation, AIDS, and even death, go from feeling like wild speculation to seeming actually quite probable. That night, I come to terms with the fact I may never know anything about Cousin Jerry's passing until I get a DNA test. We'll be right back. Podcasts shed light on stories that otherwise may not be told. What if you could be that voice for someone? Well, you can. The Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University allows you to do just that. Become an investigative journalist, a strategic communicator in the media field, or a thought leader in the world of sports. Do what I did. Visit cronkite.asu.edu to learn more about their graduate degrees. Who will you become at the Cronkite School? Now, back to Suddenly Family. In 2018, I get my dad a DNA test as a Hanukkah gift. I wish I could say it was because I was still looking for answers about Cousin Jerry's death. But given the timeline and everything Rabbi Kleinbaum told me about the history of HIV, I felt I had a very clear picture of what happened to Cousin Jerry. My dad sends in his saliva and I forget about the whole thing. Until a few months later, I receive a text message from my dad saying, Call me as soon as you get a chance. So I do, and without even saying hello, my dad says, My cousin Jerry is alive. The man who is my first cousin, whom I thought was dead, is now alive, and he wants to have contact with me. I'm quiet on the phone when my dad tells me this. It sounds too good to be true. A man we couldn't find for decades, who people said had died and even gave the cause of his demise, is suddenly back on a DNA test? A lot of questions quickly set in. Is this really Jerry? How can he be alive? Where has he been all these years? I was beyond excited. I was just thought that, oh, 
Jerry's alive. That's so great. You know, I just thought it was the most wonderful news I could get. And, you know, immediately we all started emailing back and forth and back and forth. I cannot ask for anything <laughs> else. I am the happiest person on the planet. So while everybody else begins celebrating, the journalist in me wants my family to ask more questions to this person claiming to be Cousin Jerry. And everything checks out. It is Jerry. He's alive, in good health, and thrilled to hear from my dad. It was wonderful. It was wonderful because I always liked your father. I liked him. He was a good kid. And I thought, gee, how nice to reunite to (laughs) meet family, long-lost family. As we learn more about Cousin Jerry, we discover this is by no means a simple story of We Lost Touch. Cousin Jerry had moved away and been hiding from our family. He had been living in Florida and Spain. And so when you did your search in the New York City area, he would not come up because he was not there. I connect with Cousin Jerry for the very first time then quickly jump on an airplane to Miami to meet him and to find out why he was hiding from our family for nearly three decades. And it's for a reason none of us ever could have expected. It all starts with his stepmother. When my father died, his wife wanted his entire estate. Either my father or she, before he died, must have ripped up the will because I know my father always had a will. But after he died, nobody could find the will, so that was very mysterious. She wanted it all. So not long after my father died, I got a phone call from her, and she said exactly that. She said, I want everything. And if you're a good person, you'll let me have it. And if you don't give me everything, it's because you're a homosexual and you're a bad person. And it's really quite sad because you and she had actually gotten along fairly well? Yes, but I think uh, it was all uh, a ruse on her part. I think she had it all planned from the very, very beginning. As a matter of fact, my Uncle Bernie, my father's younger brother also thinks she had a hand in my father's death. Of course, that's supposition and there's absolutely no way of proving anything, but she may have been plotting and planning and her nicety for the 10 years that they were married was all in preface to what was gonna happen when my father died. And anyway, her true colors came out in that phone call. Journalistically, I have no way of substantiating any of those claims, and I can't even investigate them in any way because all the people you've mentioned have passed away. From your point of view, Cousin Jerry, what was driving the hatred you felt from your stepmother? I think it was just a bigotry, a homo-hatred. And it was also an excuse for her to twist my arm so I would say, oh, I'm really a good person, so I'll give you all the money. Jerry refuses to hand over his inheritance to his stepmother. In retaliation, she outs Jerry to his aunts. And here's where things take a very ugly turn for my family. The aunts from our supposedly open-minded, tolerant family react shamefully, Jerry says. From that point on, the aunts he's been so close to his entire life start giving Jerry the cold shoulder. He says they never treated him this way until they found out he was gay. 
This goes on for years, and all comes to a head for Jerry at a family gathering in the 80s. So I walked quickly, and I uh, up behind her, and I said, Aunt Lily, Aunt Lily, how are you? And at first, she ignored it. Uh, Aunt Lily, Aunt Lily, how are you? And then she couldn't keep ignoring it because I kept saying, Aunt Lily, how are you? So she turned around and she said, who are you? And I said, Jerry. She said, who? Jerry. I said, your sister Beatrice's son. And she said, oh. And she turned away and walked away. Just like that. She turned and walked away? Yes. And what did you feel in that moment? Terrible. Really terrible. And I really couldn't understand why, because I couldn't understand how she should be so hateful knowing that anybody is gay. And did you decide in that moment to distance yourself from the family? Was it right then? That put the last nail in the coffin. I don't know if they... uh, realized they were complicit in this whole thing. It wasn't only my doing. It wasn't only me that left the family, so to speak. But they pushed me to it also. I felt unwelcome. None of the cousins ever knew some of their moms had been so cruel to Jerry. Unbelievable. Oh my God. That's the worst thing I have ever heard about my family. And he said after that he didn't want anything to do with anybody. Oh boy, I'm sure that's what happened. I'm sure he remembers it correctly, because I count on Jerry for being a very thoughtful person. So when Jerry and his partner retire early and move to Florida, Jerry doesn't give anyone his new number or address. I think when I finally put my foot down on that was when we moved to um, Florida. I never told anybody, never. We moved to Florida in 86, in 1986. Years go by, and Jerry's partner, Jose, pushes him to get back in touch. I used to tell Jerry, why don't you call your family? You should be closer to your family because that's the way I was raised. Jose has a few relatives that were very accepting of us, so that was part of our family. We had a large circle of friends. They became family. Cousin Jerry, you're hiding from us all these years, so why do you decide to take a DNA test if you know that can match you to your relatives? Probably that was in the back of my mind, that who knows who might find me or who I might find that I might be happy to find. Yeah, I'm sure that was uh, 99% subconsciously anyway of why I took the uh, DNA test. What was it like finding out that you're not the only gay person in the family anymore? It was nice. I mean, there's the strength in numbers. Not only that I'm not the only gay person in the family, but you are obviously uh, out to the world and you're okay with it. I had to live hiding it all my life. It must be wonderful to have had your experience, which is the other way around. Really, I I was delighted, absolutely delighted. When you look back, would you do anything differently? Do you wish you wouldn't have isolated yourself from the family? I think it actually made me 
be more what I am. <laughs> the good and the bad adds up. And I think if I had tried or if I had not separated myself from the family, it would have been worse because to beat my head against the wall, trying to get a family to love me that many of whom did not want to, uh, I think I would have hurt me even more. Cousin Jerry is part of the family again. He and I are in touch frequently and along with our partners have managed to meet up in three different countries. For a long time, I'm reluctant to tell Jerry we thought he died of AIDS. When I finally do, he takes a pause and puts surviving that plague down to good fortune. Yes, it was very sad, very sad. We were lucky. We had lots of very, very dear friends that were practically family that uh, weren't so lucky. I'm filled with gratitude that Jerry made it. A DNA test exposed a shameful saga inside of my family, but brought Jerry back where he belongs, with us. For more on this series, visit suddenlyfamily.net. This podcast is a production of CNN Philippines and Loomis Productions. Our editor is Lori Burke, sound engineer Levi Mercurio, executive producer Michelle Ancheta, executive consultant Army Harin Bennett. This show is created, written, and hosted by me. I'm Samuel Burke. responsibility as a journalist to tell the public what's going on. Now more than ever, the role of the media and journalists is extremely important. To make that first rough draft of history into again. As journalists, we deliver the news, we give the right kind of information. News really has the power to shape and influence a person's perspective of the world. It's about the people, it's about the stories. We verify, we confirm. We double check, we triple check from different sources. To give them the truth. Trust in one word, I would believe, is integrity. You can't force trust, you have to earn it. People can't trust me if they know that I don't know what I'm talking about. It can be very challenging, but it's very, very fulfilling. News, 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 you can trust. News you can trust. This is CNN Philippines. News. You can trust.